The reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north. And behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw. And there, engraved on the wall all round, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah and the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, worshipping the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. We're going to read through chapter 9, and then um, I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 11 from verse 14 to 25. So firstly, chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. 
And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. And then in chapter 11, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been sent. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart... 
goes after their detestable things and their abominations. I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Amen. By the way, just if you're um, following this series, you'll have noticed that we've, I've missed out uh, some chapters. The reason for that is that um, there's 48 chapters in this book, and I have 10 weeks to go through it, so I'm not going to be able to cover all the ground that I'd love to cover in Ezekiel. Um, but what would be really helpful if you really want to get into this book, I've tried to pick out some of the, the key points in Ezekiel, is to read the chapters in between um, during the week. Read what's going on in between Ezekiel, and then you really will get the best of this amazing book. Well, we've been saying really that, that the book of Ezekiel, complex as it is, is, is about one big question. And the question is this, will God be with his people? Will his glory be with them like he promised it would? Now, at the time of Ezekiel, which was around 600 years before Jesus, it was thought that, that God's glory, which is kind of like the, the visible manifestation of his greatness, uh, always associated with his presence, it was thought that God's glory was to be found in one place on earth, and that was the temple in Jerusalem, in God's holy city. That was the one connecting point between God and man on earth. But this is a time of real crisis for Israel and for the residents of Jerusalem. The mighty and savage Babylonian army have invaded the city, and they have taken most of its residents off as prisoners into exile, including uh, the guy who writes this book, Ezekiel himself. He is, um, at the start of this vision, he is in exile at, in Babylon. And we've been seeing that, that God has appointed Ezekiel to speak truth to his people in exile, and he has told Ezekiel to tell his fellow exiles that the reason that all this has happened that the Babylonians came was because God himself was judging his own people. Not Babylon. God was behind this. God was behind all the, the terrible things that his people had faced. God himself was waging war on them. And this was no off-the-cuff judgment. This was after hundreds and hundreds of years of God warning his people that they must stop what they're doing. And really, they did some of the most horrible things imaginable, these people. In fact, Ezekiel has been telling his fellow exiles that not only was God behind that first invasion of the Babylonians, but that there's something much worse coming. He's been telling them that the Babylonians are going to return to Jerusalem. And this time, rather than taking the rest of its residents off as prisoners, they're going to kill everyone there, and they're going to raise the city, and they're going to destroy the temple. The dwelling place of God with man is going to be raised to nothing but a pile of rubble. God's going to walk out on his own people. 
It's what we saw last time we were looking at Ezekiel 4 and 5. And this vision that Ezekiel has here in in chapters 8 to 11 explains to us why. It's very dark, but there's also this this injection of this wonderful promise of hope in the face of the destruction of Jerusalem. And as with all the promises that we read in the Old Testament of the Bible, they weren't fulfilled or they weren't begun to be fulfilled until the arrival of Jesus. You may have noticed that there is no temple today to house God's glory. And that is because what Ezekiel promises at the end of this vision is what Jesus accomplishes for us. So, What do we see here in Ezekiel's vision? Three Ps, the problem, the punishment, and the promise. Firstly then, the problem, God's glory offended. Chapter 8, we're joining Ezekiel. He's sitting at home with some of the elders. Maybe some of the the, the elders that are in exile with him, maybe they heard what his prophecies were in chapters 4 and 5 about God's destruction of Jerusalem, and they might have been meeting together to discuss what they're going to do because in their head, Jerusalem cannot fall. So Ezekiel is sitting with these elders, uh, and he gets kind of whisked away in this vision. Uh, The man described in verse 2 is the same deliberately vague description of God given way back in chapter 1, and God sort of grabs him by his hair uh, and seems to teleport him 700 miles away to Jerusalem. I have no idea how how this happened. Like, Did he go in some sort of trance, or or was it a dream? Uh, In my head, I kind of picturing it like, don't know if you've ever used Street View and Google Maps. You know when you pick up that little man and then you drop him in for Street View. That's kind of what's going on in my head. Um, something like that. So, but he's transported to the temple back home in Jerusalem. And what he sees in that temple is shocking. God's people have transformed the temple, the, the place where the presence of God was. They have transformed it into a place of worship for pagan gods. And what follows in verses 5 to 18 is kind of a a guided tour of this idolatry that was in the temple. Yeah, I remember when Kyrene and I were on honeymoon, we went on a tour of a cathedral in Iona. That's that's how we roll. That's how cool we are. We do just like to spend our holidays uh, looking at old buildings. Uh, and we were given, you know, these audio guides, uh, you know, the ones that tell you where to go to. They explain what happens and they tell you where to go to next. Head on to number 13 and then you read about something that's happened in the building. Well, as Ezekiel is given this tour round the temple, God ends each section by saying these words to him, but you will still see even greater abominations. It gets worse and it gets worse. So what did he see? Four things. Firstly, he saw the idol of jealousy. Chapter 8, verse 5. Then God said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar grate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. So as he's brought to the temple entrance in the north, What's standing there is an idol, a statue to a foreign god, probably one of the Canaanite gods, in the place where where the one true God is to be worshipped, the God who rescued his people, the God who promised to be with his people, the God who speaks and communicates with his people. In his house is this blind, deaf, dumb piece of wood, which the Israelites are worshipping instead of God's. 
We're not told what God specifically this idol was meant to represent. The only thing we know about this idol is how it made God feel. It provoked him to jealousy. Now, what are we to make of that? How would, how would you describe God? Think about the different attributes of God. Have you ever thought of describing God as a jealous God? He's frequently described in the Bible as being jealous. And often to us, jealousy can seem like quite a negative thing because we as sinful human beings can be wrongly jealous. We can be jealous because we're, we're trying to be too controlling over someone or trying to manipulate someone. But God's jealousy here is the only appropriate response to idolatry if he really does love his people. What do I mean? Well, if you're married, you know this. If your husband or your wife starts sleeping around with other people, would you not feel jealous? It's not petty to feel jealous. It's because you love them. You made a promise of commitment to each other. And when God's people sleep around with false gods, he is jealous because it's a breach of that promise. He promised to love them and they promised to love him. Idolatry is just, it's spiritual adultery. It's a relational breakdown. And that is what's happening here in this chapter. That is what's happening in God's temple. And it gets worse. Second thing Ezekiel sees, he sees the elders, the leaders of God's people worshiping the gods of Egypt. Have a look at verse 7. He brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jaazaniah the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Ezekiel sees the, the 70 leaders back in Jerusalem, 70 leaders of Israel. Among them is this guy, Jaazaniah the son of Shaphan. Uh, we don't know who Jaazaniah is, but we do know Shaphan, he's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 22. And he's presented as this great reformer, this man who did uh, so many good things for Israel, who loved God. And here his son is leading this idolatrous practice, this worship of these creeping creatures and, and loathsome beasts, these images. It's probably the gods of Egypt, that's the gods that they worshipped. God's people are worshipping Egyptian gods. In private, you know, the kind of the vision is Ezekiel sneaking through, burrowing through the wall to see what's going on behind closed doors. Publicly, oh yes, yes, we follow the God of Israel. But privately, they're worshipping the gods of Egypt. Third thing Ezekiel sees in his tour of idolatry, he's brought back to the north gate in verse 14. And there he sees a group of women weeping for a god called Tammuz. Uh, Tammuz was a, a Babylonian deity who I believe had died. And, and the practice was amongst the Babylonians that, that if you were to weep long enough, you could bring him back to life. And he would help bring your crops back to life and, and he would provide aid for you. And these women are outside the temple weeping for Tammuz. Worship of the living God has been replaced for weeping over a dead God. 
final stop in this tour of abomination is in verse 16, where the group of men turn in their back on the temple of God. They turn their backs to God, willfully rejecting the presence and the glory of the God of Israel, and instead they are facing the Son, worshiping the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. This is spiritual adultery of the worst form. And they've done it all in a very subtle religious way. It's not that they've got rid of the God of Israel. They're still claiming to follow him. But God sees the truth. And he has this kind of expose that he's wanting Ezekiel to see what he sees. To see the rotten core of Israel's idolatrous heart. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because this is conveyed here in this vision as being one of the worst things that these people could have done. I mean, God doesn't show Ezekiel the the horrendous acts of violence and bloodshed that was going on in the city. He doesn't show him the the rampant sexual immorality, nor does he show show him the extreme oppression of the poor and the injustice, all of which were very prevalent in Jerusalem. This is the worst crime right here. This is what God finds most offensive and more horrendous than anything else. Why? Because this is a direct assault on their relationship with God. It's a direct assault on God himself. He spoke to these people. He promised to dwell with them, to save them. He loved them, but they've turned their back on him. They had given their affection, their time, their devotion to anything else apart from him. They turned away from God and they turned away from his word. They have abused his goodness and his patience and they've done it all here in God's house, in his temple. Why did they do that? Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 8. I think this is the key and it's mentioned again in chapter 9, verse 9. Verse 12 of chapter 8. Halfway through, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. I don't think that means that that they feel that what they're doing in private is not being seen by God. I think they're feeling that that God doesn't really care about them. That they don't really trust God. God hadn't done what they thought, so they were looking for security elsewhere. God's not going to rescue us. He's forsaken us. Why not try some other religion? Why not try some other gods? Now, this may sound like a million miles away to us today, all that's going on here, but let me tell you, this is profoundly relevant to the church, profoundly relevant. Every single human being naturally worships. We all worship. We all do. It might not be Tammuz. It might not be the sun, certainly not here in Scotland, though if you went to the meadows this afternoon, you might have thought people were sun worshiping then, but we do worship. See, idolatry is just simply putting something or someone else in the place of God. And you can come to church and appear to be a follower of Jesus, but secretly be an idolater. What would Ezekiel see? What would Ezekiel see if God gave him a tour of the churches in Edinburgh this Sunday? If God exposed the hearts of the churches in this city? churches that seem to actively encourage multi-faith services, 
churches that openly deny the Word of God, churches where the minister will say things like, the Bible is not really God's Word, it's just a myth. And they wear the guise of being very religious, but they're bowing down to the idols of tolerance, the idols of culture, over and above listening to the true God. And we must point out such abominations. We must, because it is an offense to God's glory. But we must also use this passage to examine our own hearts. You see, what if God were to expose not just the inside of our churches, what if God were to expose the inside of our hearts tonight? Idolatry is way more subtle than we'd imagine. What is in our hearts that we are putting in the place of God? Ask yourself, where do you look for your trust and your confidence in life? I follow Jesus, but I really need money to make my future secure. So I will rely upon it, even though Jesus tells me to store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. I follow Jesus, but I really want to have a comfortable life, so I won't give too much of my time to the gospel or to the church, even though Jesus tells me to deny myself, to take up my cross, and to follow him. I follow Jesus, but my priority is really my kids or my family, so they will always take precedent over my devotion to Jesus, even though Jesus tells me to forsake all others for him. I follow Jesus, but when life gets me down, I need something more than him, something like drink or relationships or or just acceptance, something to, to get me through, even though Jesus tells me I can always come to him and speak to him, and even though he says his grace is sufficient for all that I need. It's so subtle. It's trusting anyone or anything more than God, and these are all good things, but it's when we take these good things and we put them in the place of God, that is idolatry, when we make them ultimate things. And you know what? Fundamentally, it says to Jesus, you're not Lord of my life. This person, this thing is. Or often, more often than not, it's when we put ourselves in the place of God, that life is about me. We love to worship ourselves. And to do that persistently, to do that without any repentance is a very dangerous thing because God will not share his glory. If he did, if God was okay with sharing his glory, he would be fraudulent. He would not be real because he would be saying that there is something else that is more glorious than him. And it's okay to give glory to that. But if he is to be God, he has to be glorified. And so what's the result of all this abomination? Second thing we see, the punishment. God's glory avenged and withdrawn. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the people have been doing this. This is not just something they've been doing recently. And they've constantly refused. They've got worse and worse. And so God gives Ezekiel just a little taster of what's been going on. Then he shows Ezekiel what he's going to do. Chapter 9. Cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, on which it rested on the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, 
pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were before the house. God arranges these six men to go through the city, beginning at the temple where the abominations have been, and to completely wipe it out. Now, what do we say about this? Maybe we could say this is just a vision. Like, if you were to watch a Tarantino film full of violence, it's just a movie. It's not real. I'd be tempted to say that, but the only problem is that this did happen five years after this vision. It wasn't six men, but the Babylonians came back to Jerusalem and they wiped it out completely. And it seems here that what God is saying is that he's behind it. He was behind that as an act of his judgment. If his people want to be a pagan nation, he will judge them like a pagan nation. And it all seems so extreme, doesn't it? Ezekiel seems to think so too. He cries out in verse 8. Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? These are your people. Ezekiel's thinking, if Jerusalem's standing, if the people are there, then there's still hope. Here's one thing to notice, though. It seems extreme, but it's never seen as unjust. Severe, but not unjust. Look, if this was us, we'd be thinking, that's not how we would do things. But we are not God. We have not seen the horrors that he has witnessed with these people for hundreds of years. They really were horrendous. And it has to stop. Or there will be some, we'll see, who are protected from this. But it has to stop. God has to punish evil if he is to be good. How impotent and weak would he be if he did not? If all that he did was speak about how bad evil is, but he did nothing. Too afraid to condemn that which is detestable. Too powerless to allow that which he does not permit. We may not like it, but his judgment is a necessary response of his goodness to evil. And his judgment comes off the back of years of patient pleas. But you know what's far more terrifying than the slaughter of chapter 9? We didn't read it, but you can see that the heading there of chapter 10, the glory of God leaves the temple. Chapter 10 is all about God's presence leaving the temple. God is walking out on his people. For years and years he had warned them. He had pleaded with them. They have turned their back on him. So now he turns his back on them. And when God leaves, there is no hope. That is the worst thing that God could do to humanity, to leave us alone. And it's Jesus who speaks of judgment that will come at the end of time. This is not vengeful God of the Old Testament. It's Jesus who magnifies the judgment of God puts it onto the scale of eternity. It's Jesus who says that he's coming back to judge your idolatrous hearts. And it's Jesus who speaks of the reality of hell and describes it as a place departed from God's presence. In many ways, hell is just when God gives rebellious human beings what they want. That's why C.S. Lewis called hell um, the, the greatest monument to mankind's freedom. If you don't want God, then you won't get God. But that is a dreadful reality because without him, there is no forgiveness, there is no goodness, there is no love, there is no relationships, there is no hope. 
And passages like this are a warning to us in the Bible, especially to to those who use their religious identity to try and justify themselves. Judgment is coming. If you claim to follow Jesus, but secretly you don't live for him and there's no repentance in your life, if you outrightly refuse Jesus, if you stand in a pulpit like I am doing just now and you refuse to preach the whole truth of God's word, judgment is coming. It hasn't come yet because as the apostle Peter reminds us, the Lord is patient not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is patient, but beware the judgment of a patient God. And the impact of of this whole vision is too much for Ezekiel. He cries out again in verse 13 of chapter 11, Lord God, will you make an end to the remnant of Israel? All their hope is on Israel, on Jerusalem, on the temple, on these people that are still there. No hope for Israel, no hope for the world. If God can't live with them, how can he live with any of us? But thankfully in Ezekiel, judgment is not the last word. Thankfully, God speaks. It's the third thing we see, the promise. God's glory will not leave the faithful. Chapter 11 has one of the most amazing promises in the Old Testament of of restoration, but just note prior to that that in chapter 9, there's already a plan of salvation in place. As this kind of death squad is moving through slaughtering uh, slaughtering people in the city, they are following in the wake of a man dressed in linen who is commanded by God to put a mark on people's heads. It's a mark of salvation from judgment. And who gets this mark? It's those, verse 4, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. In other words, God's righteous judgment is going to pass through the city, but those who genuinely follow him, those who repent, those who weep over sin, they will be saved. They will be protected. It's a picture that's very reminiscent of the Passover in the book of Exodus. And it's a picture for us that reminds us of of the ultimate salvation that God achieved through Jesus Christ for the world. You see, although God's glory did leave, and it did, it left them, we see that at the end of chapter 11, it returned to this very spot of the temple 600 years later. It came back when God himself chose to dwell amongst human beings as the person Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says, Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And Jesus came for one purpose, to to save the world, to save us from judgment, to save us from the judgment that our idolatrous hearts deserve. We are all under God's eternal judgment because all of us, in some way, shape, or form, have mistreated Him. But Jesus has come to rescue us. And that is what his death on the cross achieved. And as he died, he takes that judgment upon himself. He steps into our place, taking our punishment. Do you know, Ezekiel 9 is troubling, but do you know what's way more troubling than Ezekiel 9? The cross of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't deserve that judgment that he faced. And yet he took Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10 upon his own shoulders as wave upon wave of God's anger for all the sin that you and I have committed and will commit was poured out upon him so that God's judgment could pass over him as he was forsaken by God so that we would never be forsaken by God. 
so that God would never walk out on us. So if you turn to Jesus, and if you are broken by your sin, and if you ask for his forgiveness, that's a good sign. The sign of repentance, that's the sign of salvation. That's what we witnessed this morning at this baptism, that, that another symbol of being cleansed from all sin. As these two men repented and professed of their faith in Jesus. But the hope doesn't end there. See, Jesus doesn't just save us. He saves us for a purpose. He saves us so that we can have his glory. The hope doesn't end for the exiles either with their salvation from the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at chapter 11, verse 14, uh, verse 16, sorry. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. A completely restored relationship. God didn't, Ezekiel was thinking and his exiles, the elders off in exile were all thinking That if Jerusalem falls, if the temple falls, God will leave them forever. But do you see what God's saying? He's saying, no, Ezekiel, you are the hope. You exiles who have been scattered off. I don't need masonry to dwell with you. I will be a sanctuary for you. And I will restore you. It's not their loyalty to him that will save them. It's his desire to change them. He will change their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And what... And when he does that, then they will follow him faithfully. What does that mean? It means that God's going to bring a supernatural change in a person's life. It means that he will give you new desires, new passion, a new ambition for him that was not there before. Jesus calls it new birth. And Jesus' death is the thing that makes it possible. You see, it's not just salvation that Jesus gives us. It's not just nice people that Jesus wants. It's new people. It's a new heart. When Jesus removed the punishment for our sin, it meant that now there is a new home for the glory of God, and it's not a building. Where does God's glory dwell today? It dwells in us. We are the temple. We have been cleansed from sin, and God lives in us by his Spirit. He dwells in every repentant follower of Jesus, and you know that you have that in you. You will know that God is dwelling in you by his Spirit, in that your chief desire now is to obey and to follow Christ. Your heart's not stony. It's not dead to God. It's alive, and it's filled with affection and desire for him. See, God does not care about religious appearance. He cares about what's in your heart. Are you trusting him? Are you asking him for forgiveness? Do you grieve over sin? Is he your desire? Do you want to change, to love him more? If you do, that is not normal. That is not a normal thing for a human being to have. The natural human heart does not grieve about sin because it offends God. The natural human heart has no desire for Christ. 
It's stone. But if that's you, you have a living heart awakened by the Spirit of God. And that means that this promise is true of you too. He will be your God. And you will be his people. When Jesus gets you, he never lets you go. He doesn't walk out. As the hymn writer says, that soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great promise that we see in Ezekiel's vision of restoration, of renewal, of new birth. Father, this morning at that baptism, we saw that promise and how it was fulfilled, how you changed their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that they could follow you. Father, we see it in our own lives. We praise you, Jesus, that that you took the dreadful punishment of God that we deserve, that you took the wrath of God upon yourself so that we could be saved and rescued, so that we could be new, so that your glory would never leave us, so that we could have you, God our Father, and never ever lose you. Thank you that with the Holy Spirit we are sealed until the day of redemption. Thank you that when Jesus gets you, he does not lose you. And Father, I pray you'd help us to see the wonderful transformation that God has worked in our lives and that he has achieved for us through his son. I pray this in his name. Amen.